Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. Now, just before we get started, we've got another one of our little puzzles that's this time been sent in by a reader. Now, the puzzle goes something like this: Driving to work one day, you notice that the mileage indicators show the interesting pair of numbers one two three four five point six and one two three point four. Now, the odometer at the top shows the mileage since the car was manufactured, while the trip meter at the bottom shows the mileage since it was last reset. To zero 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 point zero. Now, coincidentally, the digits on the trip meter are the first four digits of the odometer. How far must you drive before this happens again? You are not allowed to reset the trip meter. So, that's your challenge: one two three four five point six and one two three point four. When will those first four digits be the same again? The answer after this. The Jodcast, exploring the universe by smashing podcasts together, with David Alt, Stuart Lowe, Tim O'Brien, and Nick Rattenbury. The Jodcast September Extra Issue. Hello and welcome to the September Extra Issue of the Jodcast.、Uh, we're joined as usual by Nick and Stuart. Hi, guys. Hi, Dave. Hello, Dave. And we have quite the issue for you. We have an interview with Dr. Andreas Faltenbacher about the Millennium Simulation. We have Ask an Astronomer with Tim O'Brien. But first, before all of that, we've got your feedback. So, scouring the best of the web, of Facebook, and our postbag, let's start off with Nick. Yes, and here are some iTunes reviews from、uh, the UK iTunes Store from Hedley Wright, who writes. Jodcast rocks! Great service, guys. Informative and entertaining. The perfect way to pass the time while my eyes are deaf to darkness. From Dithetubes, the Jodcast thoroughly enjoyable and informative. The presentation is excellent and stimulated me to reread my Astronomy for Dummies.、Hmm. I haven't read that book. You've got that book? No, I haven't read it. You haven't read that book? I haven't, I haven't read the book. Maybe we should we should review that book, Astronomy、Ooh. for Dummies. I think we should probably should.、Mm. Oh, that's、yeah. good. From Violent Bob, a good listen, but the intros are getting out of hand. Cut them down, please, and get to the good stuff. What? What? There is a there is a, a feature of、um, MP3 downloads that you can、uh, take advantage of. You can fast forward. You don't have to listen to everything that's on the Jodcast. You can fast forward through if you want to. Yes. So if、uh, if really the、uh, intros、uh, do get on your Uh, nerves? Then certainly just download the, the the entire show and then fast forward. You could even fast forward after、uh, it's buffered through it, I believe. So it should be、yep. okay. In the description field for the podcast, you also get the time of the various segments, so you can skip ahead to the right time as well、mm. for your favourite part. Very good. From Anthony Brooker, going back to the iTunes UK store feedback. Important. If you only listen to one podcast, this is the one to download. August two thousand and eight. Well, we'd like you to download all of the Jodcast. <laughs> We would, of course. But anyway. Anthony writes, "Download the sounds from space, an absolute must, and thoroughly recommended."、Uh, spending half an hour listening to what can only be described as sound pictures of space. Now, from a reviewer called H, we have a wonderfully long review and、uh, abridged for、uh, for for your、uh, listening pleasure.、Uh, deliciously non-trivial, a full hour of crunchy astronomy goodness twice a month. At a time when most science and astronomy coverage in the mainstream media is stomach-rumblingly brief, the Jodcast is a five-course banquet. 
These guys deserve their pat on the back, and the Science and Technology Facilities Council needs to know that this is money well spent. And let's face it, not many things make me pleased to pay my taxes. Well, that sort of review makes me happy to get up and get out of bed in the morning, frankly. It does. We, we do appreciate all the nice feedback that we get from our listeners. They're all very nice. Absolutely. Now, from the iTunes US store, we have DQE, who writes, Delightful balance of clearly presented technical content and enjoyable personal style. I recently downloaded all available Jodcasts. Well done. And now have listened to most of them. I found their length, technical content, and program style combined well in this excellent astronomy podcast, well ahead of all other astronomy podcasts I've listened to. From Darren Phil from the Australia iTunes store, the show has a quirky slash daggy opening, much like the Are We Alone podcast, but quickly moves into an entertaining mixture of science news, chat, and science. If you like Astronomy Cast, Slacker Astronomy, or Australia's most excellent star stuff, this is the podcast for you. A criticism. They have a night sky section, but when I go out at night in central Victoria, Australia, I can't see any of the stars they talk about. Well, we talked about this last time on the Jodcast, and we are going to ask Ian Morrison, our wonderful Gresham Professor of Astronomy, to add some Southern Hemisphere highlights into the monthly night sky as well. Yes, indeed. So uh, stay tuned, so to speak, for that. You will be getting some... Southern Hemisphere-centric, if that's the phrase, uh, night sky viewing. Indeed. So and that's the end of the iTunes reviews. Stuart, what's on the web? From the web, we've had quite a few this month. We had Joe Jones saying that he was surprised to hear that the Huygens lander has been fitted with a Harley-Davidson motorbike engine. <laughs> and I think that's really? a reference to the Sounds of Space feature that we did back in August. Oh, I see. We also had an email from Roger Gray, who noticed our reference to the alien copy line from the movie Alien, where we said, in space no one can hear you scream. Mm. Now, it turns out he's actually friends with the novelist who wrote that line. And That's has, fantastic. Wow. I know, it's great. And he's, he's told them that we used it on the Jodcast, and they were suitably impressed. We also had a very long email from Glynis Van Uden, giving us various suggestions for people to interview. She also said she'd like to hear what areas of research keep the podcast presenters busy. So we'll do that at some point. We also had feedback from you, from Andrew Hewson, and from Carlo Pushtak. So thank you very much to all of them. Well, yes, uh, Carlo Pushtak has also left us feedback on the Facebook wall, saying, Thanks, guys, for your answer on the forum. I'm really looking forward to it. In my opinion, this is a great way to communicate with listeners. Um, Courtly Canick from Medford, Oregon, wrote, Strange place to listen to the Jodcast. It's not really strange, but on weekends and holidays, I drive about 400 miles up to my house on California's Redwood Coast, and I listen to the Jodcast along the way. It's become a happy ritual. Cheers. We've also had feedback from Mitchell Hicks, who says, Hey, great show, keep up the good work. And finally from Claire Chatterton in Australia, saying, Hi from Melbourne, Australia. Guys, I think I need a brand new Jodcast every day. I don't listen in very weird places, but I do design buildings to the Jodcast. I wonder if it has any influence. Well, well, we'll have to wait and see, won't we? I mean, I'm not sure exactly what sort of building would look like. Um, <laughs> some spiral arm features coming off the building. That's a nice idea. Maybe sort of explosion sort of motif, maybe. Yeah. Now, as many of you already know, we are moving into video podcasting. This is in addition to the regular twice-monthly audio Jodcast. We are starting to produce some video uh, episodes of the Jodcast, and the first one will be available now. So if you go... Really? Yes. Already? Already. Now, if you go to the... uh, (laughs) 
We've been trailing it for so long. <laughs> it's actually there. It's actually there. Yeah. So go to the Jodcast website, www.jodcast.net. Take a look at the front page and you will be able to find links to our first video episode. And it is a trip up the Mark 1 level telescope at Jodrell Bank Observatory with a little bit about the history of the telescope, Sir Bernard Lovell and the observatory itself. So do check it out and see what we've done. It's pretty short. It's about five minutes long. So it's certainly not an hour's worth of uh, watching. But uh, do take a look at it and let us know what you think. And if you do want our short five-minute-long video podcast onto your MP3 player without having to do very much, just go and subscribe to one of the three RSS feeds, and it'll be there, ready and waiting for you. Yes, and we have more video episodes coming up in future months, so do subscribe to the RSS feeds, because then any new episode will be downloaded directly to your watching device, whatever it happens to be. So there's some extra Jodcast goodness coming your way. So let's get some Jodcast goodness right now and go and put your questions to Dr. Tim O'Brien. Okay, it's Ask an Astronomer time, and thank you very much again to Dr. Tim O'Brien for coming along and answering your questions. Joining me is Stuart this time to ask the first question. Yes, indeed, and the first question is from Gethin Jones, who's a physics teacher looking for some data to set up an activity for GCSE students involving plotting a Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. I think what they really want are some luminosity in suns, and surface temperature in Kelvin for about 30 main sequence stars. So, Tim, can you help us out? Yeah, so this is just just very very quickly just to explain what that is for people who, who aren't aware. It's something that two guys did independently uh, back at the beginning of the 20th century, um, Mr. Hertzsprung and Mr. Russell, surprisingly enough. <laughs> um, and uh, what they did was they, they sort of said, oh, we make sense of stars. What we'll do is we'll go around and uh, <clears throat> make observations of them, look at their colours, uh, and look at their brightnesses. And then what they did was they plotted uh, one property against the other on a, on a, on a graph. Uh, and, you know, one hopes when you do this in science is that you, you rather than seeing just a scattered diagram where all the points are randomly scattered all over the place, hmm. uh, there's some structure appears, and then that tells you that these properties are related in some way. And, in fact, what they saw was that something like 90% of the stars lay along the diagonal band in one of these, you might call them a colour-magnitude diagram, colour against brightness, basically. Uh, and that basically tells us that from a random set of stars, you know, if 90% of them lie along this diagonal band, which they called the main sequence because most of the stars were on it, um, that means that on average n- uh, stars spend 90% of their life in that phase where they'd sit on that. So this is the HR diagram. Um, right. And what stars would not lie on the main sequence then? Okay, so the main sequence is basically where stars spend 90% of their lives. It's where they're turning hydrogen into helium in the, in the cores, just like the sun is. Um, the point where you are on the main sequence depends on the mass of the star. So um, the more massive the star, the, the higher up the main sequence is, it's hotter and it's brighter. Um, the less massive the stars are, are cooler and, and redder so they're, they're, uh, and fainter, so they're down to the bottom right. Um, and the stars that are not on the main sequence are the ones that have either not quite formed and not started um, burning hydrogen into helium, so they're sort of pre-stars really, proto-stars, um, and all the stars that have gone beyond that stage in their evolution. So we talk about the red giants, um, various types of sort of red giant, asymptotic giant branch stars, you know, white dwarves, the endpoints of stars, those sorts of things. So basically stars move off the main sequence when they run out of hydrogen. Where do we get these data from? 
Yeah, well, you know, it's a it's a good question actually, and in fact, you know, I, I what we'll do, I think, one of one of the, one of the simple things we can do is actually we can put the data that this particular um, uh, listener is asking for on our website, so we can sort of say, okay, save you the trouble, we'll put it on the website, and we'll give a few links to a few places where you can get it from. The sorts of places we'll be looking at the sorts of surveys, like for example, the Hipparchos survey, which was measuring the properties of stars, you know, out, out to. Uh, out to a reasonable distance from uh, from the sun, uh, and you can dig these things around on the web. But as he says, he'd done a lot of googling and couldn't come up with anything. So we'll we'll give him a shortcut. <laughs> Very good. Our next question comes from John Randall, and he writes: I remember reading somewhere that the spiral arms of galaxies are not stable, long-lasting features which go around as the galaxy rotates, like a Catherine wheel, but are more like waves continuously forming and fading away in different regions of the galaxy. Does this mean waves of star formation? And is this why the arms are brighter than the regions in between? How does this fit in with the observation in one of the recent Jodcasts that our sun has completed around 25 orbits of the galaxy since it was formed? Yeah, well, it's, it's, that's right. I mean, the fact that it's the, the sun's gone round so many times, um, when, when basically when we started measuring um, uh, the rotation speeds of, of stars in galaxies, it was realised that these spiral patterns would wind up so you start with this spiral pattern, and if things are moving round as fast as they appear to be, as indeed they are, um, that spiral pattern, if it were fixed in the stars, you'd expect to have wound up by now. So why do we still see these um, spiral galaxies? And, and the theory that um, that we basically uh, adhere to these days is, is something called density wave theory, or spiral density wave theory. Um, and it's basically what, what what our listener suggests, which is that there's... There's actually waves that pass through the matter that makes up the disk of the galaxy. So the way to think about it is, uh, you know, if you think about water waves, for example, uh, you, you go to the beach, throw a, throw a plastic football in the water or something and watch what happens. You'll see the waves coming in onto the beach, but the, the ball will largely just move up and down as the wave, as the wave goes past. Um, so it's not actually the water itself that's moving towards the beach all the time. If all the water was moving towards the beach, it'd, it'd be a serious <laughs> issue. Um, so in fact, what's happening is these waves that basically change in the depth of the water on the surface of the water, basically, are moving relative to the water. The wave moves through the water. So in this uh, theory, what happens is there's a, there's a density wave, which means that there's a wave of a compression, uh, the, the, the gases is squeezed to higher density in a wave pattern that sort of spirals, tracks its way around and around and around the galaxy. Now, of course, what happens if that's true, if the, if the gas clouds are compressed as this wave goes past, that increases the chance that you'll, you'll bump a region of the cloud of gas up above what we call the genes mass, which is something that the, the physicist, astrophysicist genes came up with originally. You get above a certain amount of mass in a certain volume that will then collapse under its own gravity and you'll form stars. So what's happening is this wave's going past, compressing the gas, um, and stars are sort of dropping out of the gas being formed as you go along. Now, if that was sort of all it was, you've still got to do a little bit more thinking about it to work out why that leads to the, to the observed properties of a spiral galaxy. And it's basically because if you imagine this spiral density wave um, making a mix of stars of different masses, um, then like we were just talking about with the HR diagram, in fact, the higher mass stars that are made are brighter, um, and the lower mass stars are redder. Uh, and in fact, it's the higher mass stars that burn up the hydrogen in their core at a higher rate, and so they don't live as long. So in fact, what, what you'd expect to see as a result of this density wave thing passing through is that somewhere just behind the density wave, because it takes a little bit of time for the, uh, for the stars to form, you, you tend to see, um, the hot blue stars, bright 
sort of bluer stars, uh, the high mass stars. Now, you're also forming low mass stars as well. Okay, so there are some red stars, some smaller, less massive red stars around there as well. But what happens is those high mass, hot, bright blue stars don't live very long and die in, say, supernova explosions, for example. Um, and then, so somewhere farther behind the density wave now, there won't be any of those stars left anymore. There won't be any of those hot, bright blue stars left. You'll just have the red dwarf type stars left behind. So you've got to imagine this sort of spiral density wave sweeping through, seeding stars, you know, dropping stars in its wake. Um, and, and, and the, the, the ones that are closest to that, to that wave are going to be the bright blue stars. And then sort of spreading out, trailing behind it way all the way around the galaxy are all these, all these red stars. And so when you look at a galaxy, you take a snapshot of it, of it now, you see this spiral pattern delineated by these hot, bright blue stars, in fact, and that's what gives this, a spiral galaxy its, its classic appearance. I like to think of density waves as traffic jams, like you get it on the motorway. Mm. In fact, there was a really great video made by some researchers in Japan. It was on the New Scientist blog, I think, and they had a circular traffic jam going around, which did make me think of density waves in galaxies. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, any, anybody who looks, anybody who's experienced driving on a motorway or a highway or something, and you, you suddenly hit, hit a traffic jam, and then you sit in there, <laughs> grumpily, and then a few minutes later, however long it takes, you accelerate away out the far side of it, and you think, well, what was all that about? Where was the sort of roadworks or something? Well, in fact, you know, generally those things are a bit like, the, they're basically like these density waves, the waves that move through the traffic, and if you could film those from above with a helicopter, you'd see these sorts of high regions of density of cars, moving relative the cars will be going into the back of them and accelerating out, out the other side um, and like Stuart says this quite interesting video got round the problem of how you film it from the helicopter by effectively taking the motorway and winding it into a circle and having people drive round and round and try and try and make these patterns that track around the circle quite good fun okay next question is from Jonathan Parr he says if when we look out into space we are basically seeing back in time is there a possibility that any of the millions of galaxies we see could actually be the early Milky Way, or does it just not work like that? Well, I would say the simple answer is it doesn't just work. Like, it doesn't <laughs> work like that. Um, I mean, just to, for example, what what, you, what we're what we're looking at is when yes, the farther we look, the farther we look away from the Earth, the farther back in time we're looking. So, for example, um, you know, when we look at the Moon. Um, we see the moon as it was about one and a quarter seconds ago because light takes about one and a quarter seconds to get to us from the moon. If we look at the sun, and of course we all, all, all judge cast listeners will know we shouldn't look at the sun in case we hurt our eyes. Um, but uh, if you imagine looking at the sun, um, you'd see it as it was eight minutes ago. Um, if you look at the nearest other star, um, we see it as it was about four and a half years ago. Um, so it's all just due to do with distances and the fact that light travels at a finite speed. You just work that farther and farther and farther away. You're going to see distant galaxies as they were millions, even billions of years ago. Of course, we're not seeing ourselves in that. We are still where we are. The only way around that, and it's sort of an interesting idea, is that maybe the universe has some bizarre topology that means that it's sort of folded back on itself in some way. So it might be that you can get, um, effectively get light paths that sort of uh, go around the universe in some sense. So maybe you can look in one direction and see the back of your own head or something. That might be an interesting idea. But uh, I think that's probably still not really proven yet. The basic idea, you look back in, look back in time, the farther away you look, you wouldn't really see yourself out there. The next question is from Stanley Fertig, and he writes, A large part of the evidence for dark matter is the fact that galaxies appear to rotate not like the solar system. The excess speed of the outer star's rotation argues for a distribution of mass 
which is not weighted towards the center, hence the dark matter halo. My question is, if dark matter does interact with matter, and presumably with itself gravitationally, then why is the dark matter halo not observed to collapse onto itself, at least in some cases? Okay, so yeah, I mean, the summary of that, you know, the background to that is all perfectly correct. If all the mass, largely, you know, the majority of the mass of a galaxy was concentrated at the centre, towards the centre, then uh, then the velocities, the speeds of, uh, of the outer parts of it, the rotation speeds, would actually reduce. They'd go like one over the square root of the distance from the centre, actually. It's just, just from Kepler's laws, just like in the solar system. Um, so we don't see that. We don't see the velocity, I mean waggles about a little bit but in general the the speeds of stuff tend to stay up higher above that one over the square root of the radius almost flat in fact in some cases hence the term flat rotation curves um now the so yeah there's the, the we do believe that there's these dark matter halos extending way out behind beyond the visible disk of the of the galaxy so i would say i mean i, mean, I think I'll, I'll invite Stuart in on this and yourself as well to discuss this if you like but i would say one one point would be for example, if you just placed um, a set of particles, a set of dark matter particles, whatever these particles that have mass and feel gravity, um, just in position, stationary, in a big halo around a galaxy, then they would undoubtedly fall towards the middle because the gravity would pull them um, towards the central concentration. But if you started with these particles stationary in this thing, then they would, you know, they could fall down towards the middle, but that largely they just go straight through and back out the other side again, and you end up with the same thing again. Of course, in reality, what's happened is we've got these particles that are probably on orbits anyway, so that's, uh, mm. that, you know, that is going to happen, that you're effectively going to keep your halo. How could you make this thing collapse then? How could you make, how do you make the visible matter of the galaxy collapse? Well, normal matter... Um, uses things like friction or radiation, so it can radiate away energy, and that helps it collapse down into the centre or by friction hitting other bits of matter. Yeah. But we don't have that with the dark matter. That's right. Yeah. So that's that's basically. I mean, this this idea that the visible disk of a galaxy is this sort of flat thing is largely because it's been able to radiate away some of its uh, some of its energy, some of the energy of its motion to let it collapse to the middle. Otherwise, it'd just be on these basically on these big orbits and, and sat way out, which is what the dark matter seems to be doing. Mm. Our interview this episode with uh, Dr. Andreas Falkenbacher um, talks a lot about uh, the difference between baryonic, so-called normal matter, and the dark matter in the universe. So take a listen to that and listen to what he has to say about uh, dark matter and normal matter. Okay. Yeah, perhaps I shouldn't have called it normal matter, as only 5% of matter is made <laughs> up of it. Very abnormal matter. <laughs> okay, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not sure whether this is allowed in the rules of Jodcast Ask an Astronomer, but uh, I want to just put in a, uh, a question that I was asked that wasn't from a Jodcast listener just this week, just a couple Ooh, of days go on, ago. We'll, we'll let you off one, this one's. <laughs> so, um, in fact, I was, I was telephoned at home on, uh, on Tuesday evening, so that would have been the 9th of September, um, and I said, yes, hello. And they said, are you, uh, Tim O'Brien? I said, yes. He said, um, you an astrophysicist? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Who's this? I said, oh, it's, uh, BBC Radio 5 Live. And I said, all right. And they said, um, would you come on the breakfast show tomorrow morning to tell us how the universe is going to end? <laughs> <laughs> So that was a rather more unusual <laughs> question than we get from the Jogcast listeners. Why, yes. <laughs> so, so of course, this is um, this relates to the, the switch on of the the Large Hadron Collider, the, the LHC that happened on uh, on Wednesday morning, on the tenth of September. And the LHC, for those who who may have been on a different planet for the past few weeks, is a huge particle accelerator in CERN. It's near Geneva in Switzerland, and 
they've just started their new experiment. Yeah, so I mean, the thing, the thing is, I mean, I, I guess every, I'm assuming since it appears that most people in the world heard about this, that, I, that the Jodcast listeners will have heard about this, um, the, 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 the question really comes from the fact that there was some talk of whether this, uh, this experiment was going to, uh, was going to destroy the world, maybe even the universe actually when it was switched on on, on Wednesday morning. Of course, what I did was, uh, I did my job, which is I explained to the researcher that this was not going to happen. And luckily enough, I've been proved right. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't have made any difference, really. <laughs> no, no, I don't think you could have sued me. Um, so, uh, yeah, I explained to them what, what, why that wouldn't happen, basically. And we can perhaps have a, have a little chat about that and maybe also a little chat about, um, about what it might do for astronomy. Is that fair? Yeah. Now that the universe hasn't been destroyed, we can still observe the universe. <laughs> I mean, the whole issue about this was uh, some, some theory that the LHC would produce when the experiment was running, a black hole. A microscopic black hole. A microscopic black hole, and of course we'd instantly therefore be sucked into it, and I'm not sure how the whole universe would go into there as well. But anyway, that's beside the point. Eventually, there. maybe. It would start with us, and we would therefore destroy um, mankind by turning this machine on. You do have to wonder how the whole universe would be sucked into a microscopic black hole when there are plenty of supermassive ones around the place. It's a good point, Stuart. In fact, you know, I mean, that's one of the points about black holes, isn't it? There's this classic sort of argument about, you know, what would happen if the sun turned into a black hole, you know, and the point is that we wouldn't all get sucked into it. In fact, we'd just carry on orbiting around it. We'd all get quite cold in about eight minutes, um, but uh, and it'd be quite dark as well, uh, but we certainly wouldn't get sucked into it. So that's one part of the confusion about black holes is they're sort of regarded as, you know, cosmic vacuum cleaners or something that suck up, suck up everything around them, and that isn't necessarily true. So the, so the other, the other, the other argument about it is, is, is about this whole concept of if it did produce these microscopic black holes, which, you know, no one, it's actually regarded as being quite, quite a small chance that that would happen, in fact, because it requires some uh, breakdown of what we, what we think is the standard interpretation of physics that we have at the moment. Um, but if it did, why, even so, why would that still not be a problem? Why would that still not, um, uh, cause the, cause the world to be destroyed? And I think there's um, um, there's a there's a few arguments here. One one is that it's it's thought that these very tiny black holes would evaporate away, and this is something called Hawking radiation. Is, is a prediction made by made by the famous physicist Stephen Hawking. Um, and this is uh, in answer to another question which we received from Roger Gray, who exa- asks exactly this. He asks, if black holes evaporate, what material escapes from inside the event horizon to cause this? Yeah. So. Um, we're going beyond the realms of standard astrophysics here, of course, and standard astronomy. But uh, in fact, what what Hawking had, uh, had done in this really is is a sort of maybe it's one of the closest uh, ways we've come to looking at trying to unify um, quantum theory and gravity. So he sort of used it's an application of quantum physics to these regions of you know quite curved space time, quite high gravity around around these black holes. And the idea is that actually what might happen is in the sort of these so-called vacuum energy fluctuations that you get in quantum field theory where you can sort of out pop, popping out of the sort of foam, the vacuum sort of fluctuations you get in, in, in the universe, uh, you get a particle-antiparticle pair. And if this happens quite close to the event horizon of the black hole, then actually you can get uh, one rather than normally, which would happen is that they'd pop up and then immediately annihilate and go back again into them. You just sort of pop it up and disappear and pop it up and disappearing all the time within the sort of realms of the uncertainty principle. Um, then what happens is one particle might actually escape 
uh, away from the black hole, the other particle falls down into the black hole and can't escape from the event horizon. And the net result of that is effectively the, the, the black hole is radiating away these particles or, or energy, if you like, and so it therefore loses energy and, and evaporates. And this whole process, I think, is, you know, accelerates as the, as the, as the, the black hole gets smaller and smaller. And so quite quickly, very quickly, um, these tiny black holes would actually just evaporate away with a little burst of radiation from these, from this Hawking radiation. That's one argument for why these things would, um, would not be a problem if they were formed. And there is another argument that just basically relates to the fact that we're all still here and have been here for some billions of years now. We have, because as listeners to previous episodes will be aware, there are things called cosmic rays, which are very high-energy particles from the space between the galaxies, which are constantly hitting our upper atmosphere, and in fact have energies far in excess of those in the collisions in the LHC. So we might have expected to have been had this happen already with cosmic ray collisions in our atmosphere. Yeah, so basically if, if, if this process happens in LHC collisions, it, w- it would presumably have been happening in these cosmic ray collisions all the time. These microscopic black holes will have been formed, and in fact, you know, presumably the Earth would have been destroyed already some, some, a number of times over, in fact. And, and also looking around the universe in general, this process would be happening all the time to other planets, to neutron stars, white dwarfs, whatever. We just don't see any evidence for that. So that's, I think that's probably true. I mean, of course, you know, just returning to the sort of theme of one reason why, the other, another reason why the universe didn't end last Wednesday was, of course, because the LHC didn't do any collisions last Wednesday either. But uh, <laughs> maybe we should all worry for a month or two's time when they start doing the collisions. <laughs> Very good. So in the news, uh, the LHC experiment has been referred to as the Big Bang experiment. So it's a particle physics experiment. So what's the connection with astrophysics? Yeah, well, it's a good question, actually. I mean, I think on, in, in, in the UK, BBC Radio 4 uh, had Big Bang Day, in fact, was what, 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 what it was all day. It was Big Bang Day, and it was all about the LHC. And actually, you know, it was great because it got people, it certainly got people talking about physics, uh, and that's quite hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> so, and these are, you know, just, just your average, just your average person in the street was, was actually talking about this experiment. Now, you know, one can, argue uh, about this whole business about the end of the world that certainly got people interested and there's obviously a bit of a debate over whether that was a good thing really that we it was a bit of a skirmishing thing i did hear stories from people here that, that, that the kids at the school were some kids were in tears you know they were crying about the fact that they thought the world was going to end and it's you know we don't really want to be uh, doing that do we but but yeah no in general it was great um People, people were talking about it. I got emails from people who I haven't spoken to for years just emailing me about it and just sort of asking me what was going on with it. So in general, a very positive thing. I would, I would say, I don't know what Stuart thinks about this or, or yourself, but I would say that I think calling it the Big Bang experiment seems to have got a bit out of hand, actually. I mean, I don't know whether, you know. I mean, it is, it is a big bang for protons. <laughs> it is, yeah. I mean, it's, the, what they're really saying is that the, the energies of the collisions that the, they smash these protons together, um, the energies that they, uh, y- using in those collisions, those energies wouldn't, um, are basically equivalent to energies in the universe, a sort of fraction of a second after the beginning of the universe, after the big bang. So they've approached in terms of in terms of colliders, in terms of particle colliders, this is the closest that they've yet approached the conditions that uh, w- were around at the time of the beginning of the universe in the Big Bang. Now, I think 
you know, it goes too far probably calling it the Big Bang experiment because really they're not trying, they weren't trying to recreate the conditions of the Big Bang in that sense. It wasn't really to do with the Big Bang. So the, so the sort of, um, you know, in fact, you know, maybe it's, what is it, seven times more energetic than, than the previous, uh, previously most energetic collider, uh, the Tevatron. Mm. Um, and, you know, obviously one could have called the Tevatron the Big Bang experiment because it approached the energies, you know, a bit later after the Big Bang, but still, you know, uh, a couple of seconds after yeah, the Big Bang. Yeah, yeah, something like that. So it's sort of a bit, you know, I think that was probably a bit of a misnomer. Of course, it's, you know, it catches the eye and people are interested in things like the Big Bang. We know they're interested in astronomy. Uh, and it seems that the things that are sort of astronomically related, the Big Bang, the black holes, these were the things that were catching people's attention, actually, even even, even with the LHC. But the LHC is going to do lots of great physics, though, that's not necessarily related to cosmology or astronomy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, no, I mean, it's, you know, it is the superlative um, physics experiment. You know, it's, it's, going, it's going to, um, we hope... Uh, it's certainly probing the, the realms of physics that we've never, we've never, we've never got into that regime of physics before. So it's a, an amazing physics experiment and certainly should be, uh, is going to produce some incredible results. Quite whether it's really got much to do with the Big Bang or not, I'm not sure to be honest. I, I, I suspect not. One of the possibilities is it's going to, it may, it may provide the first experimental evidence for the supersymmetric theories. Um, and, and one of the candidate particles for dark matter is a, is a supersymmetric particle. So it may be that they'll be able to produce particles, which we could then say, well, actually, at least these particles exist. At the moment, they're theoretically postulated, and people say, well, you know, perhaps these are the, the, the dark matter. Um, if we can actually make them and see them in the lab in this, in this machine, then it takes you one step forward in the process, in the quest to work out what dark matter might be. I don't think, I'm not sure that it would actually tell us that's what the dark matter particles actually are, but at least we'd have, you know, a good candidate that we have actually detected them. Mm. Yeah, one of the, I mean, just talking about the, uh, the, the publicity that it got as well, there was some, there was some interesting stuff, you know, there's some good questions being asked. I mean, one of the classic things that we get asked in astronomy was indeed asked of the, the physicists that are involved in the LHC experiment is, you know, what's the point of this? What's the, what's the, what, you know, isn't this a real colossal waste of money? Uh, and Brian Cox, who's actually one of the particle physicists here at Manchester, uh, answered this question quite amusingly, I thought. Um, he said, oh, no, the cost is peanuts, he says. In fact, it's less than peanuts. Less than peanuts? Less than peanuts, that's what his argument was. And in fact, what it was was basically looking at the, the, the UK's subscription to CERN, the, the, uh, the research institute that runs the LHC, something like uh, £90 million pounds a year or something like that, and basically said it's less than the amount of money that is spent on peanuts. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, he was sort of pointing out that although, you know, obviously they do, these things do cost money, you know, they do cost what sounds like a significant amount of money. When you compare it to other aspects of the economy, it's not actually quite as, as huge as you might think. One of the other interesting things was um, people talking about, there were a couple of guys talking about this, um, Simon Singh, who's wrote a book on the Big Bang, or I heard an interview with him where um, he was being asked about, you know, what's the what's the use of this? What difference is it going to make to my everyday life? Again, a classic question asked of, asked of astronomers, and it was in, his answer was interesting. He he sort of you know made the point that, uh, that you know we don't do these things for spin-offs. We don't we don't make the LHC. We don't build these telescopes that we use for in order to make people's everyday lives better on a day-to-day sense. That isn't why we do it. It's for some other reasons. That's important to say first of all. Um, but he says that there often are spin-offs, you know, it's not that we're necessarily planning for them, but they, they come out, we can't necessarily predict them. And his point was, you know, we, we look at the LHC and we'll say, well, what are the spin-offs going to be? Well, you can, maybe we can identify some already, but maybe there's going to be some in the future, we don't know. And he harked back to the people that discovered the electron. 
and they, apparently they made a toast to the, the discovery of the particle electron. The toast was, here's to the electron, may it be of no use to anybody ever. <laughs> 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 and of course, you know, you know, we're all completely dependent on it now. And we, you know, they, they just didn't, you know, they just couldn't conceive. You know, they were understa- trying to understand where this electric charge came from and they found it was this tiny particle. Um, and, and didn't realize how that might be useful to anybody. And of course, you know, how could they know? But now it's ubiquitous. And I think that just, just a final point on that. Um, Andrew Marr was, uh, who's one of the sort of political commentators that we see a lot on the TV and radio, uh, in the UK, um, was, was commenting on this. And he sort of made the point that, you know, I think is a good one is that our whole modern civilization is based on science. It's a, it's a, we're a scientific society. You know, the, the, the fact that pe- the, the way we live our lives is almost completely dependent on scientific advances. And it's exactly in these sorts of experiments and these sorts of blue skies things where we're not doing it necessarily for any particular, um, a particular spin-off or gain or technological advance. We're just doing it because there's a question that we have to try and answer. And he says, you know, if we're not going to do that, then, you know, we're not a civilization. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a good point. It is. And of course, we should thank CERN for providing us with the World Wide Web. <laughs> Indeed. Which otherwise the Jodcast wouldn't be able to, to get to you. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we look forward to when the LHC actually does start colliding protons, and uh, maybe we'll um, maybe we'll end the universe then. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> the Jodcast will continue past the end of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you very much indeed to uh, Dr. Tim O'Brien for answering your questions. Uh, please do keep them coming in via the website, just go to www.jodcast.net and follow the links to uh, the question submission page. Thanks, Tim, for bringing new light to the dark areas of our astronomical understanding. Now, we've talked before about the Millennium Simulation, in fact, back in February, but now here to talk about it even further and to explain a little bit more about the structure of the universe Here's Dr. Andreas Faltenbacher. Right, so you are working at the Max Planck Institute for Astronomy in Germany. Tell us a little bit about the, the Max Planck Institute for Astronomy, because it's, uh, it, it's, it's one of those famous institutions in the world for doing astronomy. Yes, okay, so what can I tell you about the Max Planck Institute? <laughs> the first thing to mention is probably there's a lot of money. So there's a kind of a rich rich institution so there's a lot of money this is uh, this causes or um and they have large computers and so this is one of the main centers in the world doing computer simulations so that's a good point to be there because you can have the state of the art simulations and um work with them and i'm very fortunate to be there mm. so the, the main work of the institute is uh, Computational, do you think? I mean, or do the does the institute run telescopes around the world, like many other astronomy departments? No, actually, they don't. They don't. There are some observers, of course. So there's a connection between observers and 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 theoretical physicists. But um, in in general, or it's well, it's mostly known for for the computer simulations they mm-hmm. do. And one of the projects was this um, Millennium simulation, which was done in 2004, and at that time, it was the biggest simulation done ever. Okay. Now, what's it simulating? Um, they just, or what do they simulate? They, the evolution of the matter distribution in the universe in a very coarse sense, because we do not, or this simulation and simulation does not take into account baryons or any baryonic processes. So 
all the things we can see with our telescopes or what, what this is based on on baryonic physics and this is not implemented or this is not implemented in the first hand in this simulation it only gives you an idea about the distribution of the overall matter in the universe and the, the actual model is that only a few percent let's say 15 percent of the gravitating matter is baryonic so the rest of this matter is the so-called dark matter and this is not not visible but um, for for the similar for the purpose of simulation it is enough just to to uh, for, uh, the first stage it is enough to just simulate the, the the gravitating matter and that's what's done with this millennium simulation it's remarkable to to note we should remind ourselves what baryonic matter is it's the stuff that you and i are made of what stars are made of as you said, the stuff that we can see in the universe is made of baryonic matter. Right. So protons, neutrons, stuff, matter. But as you say, as, as people have come to, to realize, most of the universe is not made of stuff that you and I are made of, what stars are made of. It's this so-called dark matter, which we cannot see, but we only know of because it interacts gravitationally with itself, presumably, and everything else. So it's interesting to that, that the, the, the simulation, if you want to simulate the universe, as the Millennium Simulation does, you have to simulate it predominantly by what the dark matter is doing. Right, that's true. There are certain hints that the matter in the universe must be, or there must be a huge amount of invisible matter. I mean, as you said, the baryonic matter, or um, why we see the baryonic matter is uh, it is um, interacting electromagnetically. So you have, you, light comes from baryonic matter because electrons um, and protons are acting together and then you get photons out of it and these photons at the end come to our telescopes and then you can see um, the the stars, for example, or everything you see, it's, it's due to electromagnetic interactions. And the dark matter seems to not interact um, electromagnetically. This is the reason why it's invisible. Um, a good idea, or I always try to to make it... It's hard for me to understand what's dark matter anyway, So, um, but I think a good picture would be um, water. Because you cannot, if you have a clear, really clear water where there's no, no uh, dirt in it, then you would not see it, but still it's, it's there and it's heavy. You would, you would feel it. So instead of talking about dark matter, I would say it's much more, it would make more sense to talk about invisible matter, but, um, the history, <laughs> the course of history was different. And so now we talk about dark matter. So the, so the millennium simulation, how does it simulate dark matter? Do you just say, well, it's, it's all dark matter. We'll just, have a big chunk of this fluid, this 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 dark matter stuff, and then let it run and see what happens. Yeah, that's that's basically what they do. They just ignore, as I said, it's um, mostly fifteen percent of the of the whole gravitating matter is baryonic. The rest is dark. So this are eighty five percent. It's dark, and in in the Millennium Simulation now they just take hundred percent dark matter. So everything is just dark matter and they ignored the baryonic part and this is well justified because um, one needs to ask the question where or when does um, dark matter and baryonic matter when do they behave differently and in most of the time of the universe of the evolution of the universe dark matter and baryonic matter just behaves the same in terms they all react only to gravity and so they follow the same pattern of motion or whatever but then 
only at the late stages if you have a, a, a huge density enhancement or huge um, accretion of, of matter at very dense at very very dense regions of the universe that would later become galaxies or clusters of galaxies then you will see a difference between the behavior of 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 um, baryonic matter and dark matter because dark matter cannot radiate so there's no electromagnetic radiation whereas the baryonic matter can do it and this is the reason why they differ so they but only in the very dense regions of the universe they are different, and this is at later stages in, in the evolution of the universe. So to a certain extent it's it's justified or it is well justified that you just use dark matter to get an to get an impression of what's what's happening in the universe. So how far back does the millennium simulation go when it starts simulating the universe? Uh let's say this is about um they they start at a redshift, so astronomers say that's a redshift of I think 170. About this, this is about few hundred thousand years um, of the universe, age of the universe. Mm. And they do to start this simulation. So not long after the Big Bang, universally speaking, not long yes. after the Big no, Bang. No, quite quite short time after the Big Bang. Yes, that's true. Mm. We should mention who did the Millennium Simulation. This is basically done by the people at MPA. This is, um, Volker Springer is um, responsible for that. Um, Simon White is one, uh, is behind all this, uh, doing the preparation. But there are other people involved in, um, you need to have a code, uh, to, uh, to run these simulations. And this Millennium Simulations is, is run with a code called Gadget. And, uh, it was mainly developed by Volker, but there are some other guys. I forgot the name, of course. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> Not to worry, we can put links to the, the Millennium Simulation on right. our website, so people who really want to know the, the details about who did what, they can they can check that out. But it was a remarkable, remarkable effort. It took, uh, obviously, many people a long time to write the code. I mean, simulating the universe is no mean feat, and it certainly took uh, a lot of computers a lot of time to, to churn the numbers out. But now, can anybody access the Millennium Simulation data? Yeah, they are publicly available. There's a uh, there's a database. Um, and probably we can put the link there too. To it's on Max Planck. Everybody can download the data. Of course, um, the Millennium Simulation computed the evolution of the universe, starting from these early times um, to to the to the current epoch. And the output of these simulations is um, stored in 64 uh, snapshots, so-called snapshots. And each of these snapshots, pure data, would be about 30 gigabyte, I, I think. So, um, it is not, and now if you want to download this data on the web, you, it's just infeasible. So the data have to be prepared. So what you can download is, for example, um, a, a Halo catalog. So people, if you have the raw data, this is of this as of 10 billion particles. You have the positions and the velocities in this box, in this simulation box, which has a huge cosmic volume. So you have the positions and the velocities of 10 billion particles. And of course, this is difficult to deal with. And so the people at MPA did some pre processing and for example they they try to find the groups the, the dense regions in this simulation so and this is what you in the end can download you can for example download a catalog 
of this of this so-called halos, the dense regions in this in this simulation. And therefore, for each halo, you only need um, three numbers for for the position and three numbers for the uh, for the velocity. So that's all you need to characterize this this halo. And this is already comprising, let's say, a million of particles or or so. So this is a way how to how you can reduce the data and still have very very um, useful information which you then can download on the web. Mm. So you yourself are using the Millennium Simulation. You were involved in producing the Millennium Simulation as it is, but you are using the results of the Millennium Simulation. What are you using the simulation for? Well, um, I do want the people want the people and. <laughs> Cannot use. I use actually. I go back to the to the raw data, because um, well, because you're there, aren't you? You're at the right. FDA, so you don't need to to worry about transfer times and stuff. Yeah, that's 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 the case, and um, that's the interesting thing. Uh, what what the public can get, or what's publicly available, has to, or it's necessarily reduced to to make it transferable to to make the data to to reduce the data size. So of course you cannot store every detail because then then the Amount of data would be mm-hmm. as large as the simulation itself, so that's the reason why you cannot, why not all things are available in in on the public database. And what I am doing is, um, I go back to the raw data. I look at these halos I talked about before. So this um, this group of uh, part of dense particles, and I I am interested in the in the shape of these objects. So in general, the only thing which is playing a role is uh, gravity. So these are particles which are at the beginning of the simulation. They are more or less smoothly distributed. And then after a few billion years um, uh, during the, the evolution of the universe, some of these particles um, are are gathered in in very very dense environments so they are attracted by gravity and so they they build the so-called ha- halos and i'm interested in the in the shape of these these halos so therefore i go back to the raw data um get the positions of all the particles within one halo and then i compute um the shape of these objects um after computing the shape that's not all so this um that's interesting per se to know how how a dark matter halo looks like i mean is it spherical for example or does it is it does it look like a pancake or is it more or less cigar shaped or so this is interesting per se but it's not not the thing i'm interested in this is more or less a byproduct of what i'm doing but the the thing then is i'm interested how is this shape of the halo related to the overall matter distribution so all the galaxies that we know of in the universe are encased in one of these dark matter halos. Yes. Okay. This is what what you have to know about the Millennium Simulation as well. The simulation is not as and it's not or at, at its time it was not just the biggest simulation in in number of particles. It was um, the good thing about the Millennium Simulation was that they provided a publicly available semi-analytical galaxy catalog. And that's the interesting thing um, uh, we, we talked about before. It is just dark matter what the simulation provides. But then, if you if you have some idea how to populate this dark matter with uh, with galaxies, then you do can do it in an analytical way. And that is um, so the simulation is is done. 
then you go back and look how the halos in this simulation, all this, this dense matter lumps, have evolved over time. And if you have an idea what the baryonic matter should have done within these halos, you can artificially create or populate these dark matter halos uh, with galaxies. And this is a very good point. If you have galaxies, then you can, and this facilitates the, the comparison to observation. And this is a very, very good advantage of the Millennium simulation, that you have on the one side this very uh, sophisticated dark matter simulation, and but on the other side you have the model galaxies, which makes it easy to compare to um, observations. How would you know which galaxy goes into which halo? So you've got your little families of model galaxies, and you've got the dark matter simulation with a whole pile of uh, halos. How do you choose which galaxy goes into which halo? Well, okay. So, uh, in general, the, the evolution, or we, we now call it hierarchical evolution of, of structure, it starts out with um, small lumps of dark matter, and they do increase, or they accrete other material, and so they do increase and become larger and larger, and, and up to the, up the to the current time if, when they are when, when they are achieve uh, cluster sizes or whatever. So the main point is you start out with very small objects and they accrete matter and they get bigger and bigger. And now you follow this path of accretion, this path of growth, and you know whenever a dark matter lump is falling into this uh, this already existing system or object, then it brings some certain amount of, of baryonic matter. We, we talked about this 15%. So that means 15% of baryons come in with this dark matter lump, and that's of, of course, this is not within the simulation, but you can say we know that it must be the case. And so you can build up galaxies. So whenever baryonic matter is coming with, with an accretion of a, of a, of another proto-halo, that means you think about what should happen to the baryons within this accreted matter, and then you say, well, part of this halos, uh, part of this baryons probably go and, and form uh, the galaxy, or um, if there's already a galaxy at the center of these halos, uh, then they they increase this galaxy, they they trigger star formation or, or things like this, so they help the galaxies to to evolve. And this is an analytical approach, and so you can from from the beginning, from this very very small seeds of of dark matter halos, you populate this with uh, with initial let's say, core galaxies, and then they evolve over the whole time of the whole course of the universe. So they effectively separated out the galaxy formation from the, 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 the Millennium Simulation of Dark Matter. So you know what a galaxy will do in terms of its baryonic matter during its evolution, or at least you think you know from your right. analytic models. And you go, well, this is what happened in the Millennium Simulation in terms of the dark matter, so we just do the galaxy calculation in parallel, I guess you could you could think of it, on the side, and once that galaxy is, or that those types of galaxies have been evolved according to how you think they should be evolved, then you can just plot them into the the dark matter halos that you have in the Millennium Simulation. Right, exactly. That's that's true. So you have the, the dark matter simulation was done before, and you have all the data stored. So you have this 64 um, outputs or snapshots. You get the merging history for each halo within this uh, snapshot, so you know how this dark matter halo evolved. And then afterwards, if this is done, you populate this this so-called merging trees with galaxies. And the good thing about this is that you can apply different models, different models of galaxy evolution. So, and this this can be done very fast. So, um, to switch some parameters in your models. Um, 
it just takes you a few hours computing time and then you have a total new galaxy population with this total new parameters but you don't need to run the whole simulation again and this is an uh, it's a big advantage um, as if you would um, compute if you would change some parameters if you would have to change some parameters because they you, you learned some more or, or some observation came up so you have to twist your parameters and in one case if you don't have stored all the dark metadata you would have to run the, the whole simulation again but that's not the case you can't just um, fiddle around and then just run the semi-analytical models again which is much less um, computational effort than running the whole simulation yeah we should talk about uh, the difference between a numerical simulation which is what the millennium simulation is and what we're talking about here with the galaxy formation which is an analytical process and analytical process simply is the solution of a whole bunch of equations basically which can be done relatively quickly whereas a numerical simulation is well, it's a brute force technique, isn't it? Pretty much, you there are no there are no equations to solve, or rather, there are so many of them that it is um, impossible to do so. So you have to work out almost uh, well, effectively by hand, <laughs> I suppose. One way of thinking of it is the 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 interactions between two pairs of particles in the simulation again and again and again and again. Right. Um, to a certain extent, the dark matter simulations are are pretty simple because you have only one law this is the law uh, the the newton law of gravity so that's all the force between two particles is proportional to the product of the two masses divided by the distance squared so that's very simple and that's the basic law which is implemented in in the simulations so for each particle you you find the neighbors and then you compute this force and sum it up and the resulting force is, uh, according to the resulting force, you move your particle. And this you do for all the particles. And the trick here now is that you have, you want to do it for 10 billions of particles. And so to, the, 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 the main, uh, the main challenge is to, to reduce computational time. So you cannot do it, um, particle by particle because that, that would just, um, take ages. Um, so you need to have more sophisticated, um, um, approaches to do this this kind of integration but in principle it's it's very simple so now that you've got a a more complete picture of the universe by picking your uh, model galaxies and you've plugged them into your uh, corresponding dark matter halos from the millennium simulation this is uh, all assuming that the two processes are independent, that the galaxy formation doesn't affect the, the dark matter evolution and, and vice versa. Is that a, a big worry? Or, as you mentioned right at the beginning, do we not worry about this in the first case? Um, as the simulation is set up, we <laughs> we are not allowed to worry about this, no. Um, <laughs> no, of course. There is some back reaction between baryons and dark matter, in particular in dense regions where, where the baryons, as I said, uh, behave differently than the dark matter. For example, radiation. Um, I just um, give an example of clusters of galaxies. Um, in the visible, uh, or if you look with the telescopes, you see a, a bunch of, of, of galaxies which are very close together. Now, in the 1930s, uh, Zwicky, I think, uh, the, the astronomer, I forgot the first name, Zwicky, Fritz Zwicky, right, he was from Switzerland, 
originally, but then he spent some time in California, I guess. So he um, he observed that you have the galaxies, you can um, observe them um, with your telescopes, and then you also, by some approach, you can uh, find out the velocities of this um, of these galaxies. And he realized that the galaxies move much too fast, uh, and that they cannot be self-bound. So the mass in the galaxies itself is too too less to to get them to hold them together. The velocities are too too high. So they would never be bound, they would just spread, um, and they would just separate from each other. And so this was the first, this was one of the first hints that there must be some dark matter. And so he, at that time in the 30s, he, he said, well, we, we, there's no, no way around. There must be more than, more than 90% must be in uh, dark matter. Well, okay, and now you have the galaxies. What I wanted to say, you have the galaxies moving around and they are, they do not collide. So they are just moving like they move. And on the other side, um, I think, um, 60 years later, so people became aware that from this kind of, from these groups of galaxies, you get X-ray radiation. And this X-ray radiation is, um, is uh, created by the hot gas between the galaxies. And what happens for the, the gas, this is baryonic matter and it can collide and due to this collision it can radiate and this is the reason why we see the x-ray um, why we can do this x-ray observations and now you there's the difference or this is what I wanted to point out is the gas radiates so it can lose its energy just by radiating whereas the galaxies they need to or they have to move around all the time and there's no way how they can lose energy now both of them are in these clusters of galaxies. Both of them are in the same region of the of the universe, and one of them, the baryonic matter, is losing energy, whereas the galaxies and the dark matter does not. And the reason now, what's happening is that the baryonic matter contracts a little bit due to the loss of energy, whereas the the galaxies cannot do this. And so there's a difference. Of course, there's a difference between the baryons and the dark matter. And now you have a, a denser, let's say, a denser baryonic component and a more spread dark matter component and now the back reaction is that the even that the dark matter component gets a little more contracted probably uh, due to the denser uh, baryonic component but that's well there is a back what i want to say is there is a back reaction but it's it's really hard to to quantify these effects so for the time being we're just not worrying about it in terms of these uh, the, the these simulations uh, of course, yes. Uh, or uh, let's put it that way: the simulations are not not set up to solve this problem. The astronomers are aware of these problems, and you can use other simulations just to investigate this. But that's that's the millennium millennium simulation is not the right thing to to do this. So, what is the millennium simulation going to be used for in comparing to what we can see in the universe? This is basically the best thing what you can do with this simulation is um, to to compare uh, or to do statistical analysis. So you can compare. Um, right now there are very ambitious uh, uh, projects, uh, observational projects like the Sloan Digital Sky Survey or two degree uh, two degree field 
they try to get some, uh, Sloan try to get a million galaxies where you can get uh, the position and the redshift so you get the three-dimensional information of these galaxies. So from observational side you have a huge amount of data and huge catalogs which are never seen before and um, the, the main thing or one of the uh, I would say the most interesting thing to do with the Millennium Simulation is to compare this huge um, uh, observational catalogs with a, with a data produced um, in the simulations. So um, the statistical comparison between um, state-of-the-art observations and the Millennium Simulation, this is uh, what I think is the most promising thing mm -hmm. to do. Now, the, the Millennium Simulation, in fact, any simulation, is hardly going to reproduce exactly what we see out in the universe. I and mean, we're talking about the, the large-scale structure of the universe. So we've seen from observations from, as you say, the Sloan Survey of Galaxies, uh, galaxies clustered into groups, galaxies strung out in these long filaments. So that overall, the universe has some elements of structure. We've got these long strung out filaments, clusters of galaxies. A simulation is not going to be able to be reproduce those exactly, in the sense that we can't look in that direction in the universe and expect if we look in that direction in our simulation, we see exactly the same thing. So how can we compare the two? Well, yes, this is a... This is a, you can compare the observations and the simulations by statistical means. Um, astronomers uh, like to use the correlation function. Uh, You'll have to explain that one to us. This is right. <laughs> so basically what you can do is uh, you can find the, the nearest neighbor, find the distance, the average distance to the nearest neighbor of a galaxy. So... Uh, this would be one statistical tool. Now you go to the observations and you look for, you have to constrain yourself to certain type of galaxies. You cannot use all, but let's say uh, we have red galaxies. That's, uh, we have red and blue galaxies in the universe. Uh, this is what observation deliver. So we have red and blue galaxies. Now let's focus on the red galaxies. And uh, I ask the question, give me the mean distance to the to the next red galaxies so this you could do in observations so you would just um, look through your telescope count um, see all the red galaxies and then measure the distance to to the to the nearest neighbor the nearest red galaxy and now you can go to the simulation to the millennium simulation or whatever and do the same you 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 have um, the semi analytical catalogs or the, the semi analytical approach uh, provides galaxies as well they have colors as well let's say red and blue and now you can go to the simulation and even uh, find the next red neighbor for each red galaxy and now you get an uh, average distance and you could compare this average distance so this is a very simplified um, example for how to compare statistically the observed with a with a simulated data. Hmm. So you would get an average distance in observation, average distance in in um, simulations, and if they do agree, then you are it's better than if it's not agree. <laughs> <laughs> How close do they have to be before you'll be happy? Um, this depends on the models, but 
well, it's a simplified uh, example. You are happy if 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 you you can apply other statistical tools, and um, it provides each each agreement provides more evidence that the the, the models you do or the simulations you do um, are close to reality. It it never tells you that you found the the right approach because there could be another approach which just results in in similar or in in equal um, measurements. So you're never sure that you have found the right answer, but you're pretty sure that all the wrong answers you can produce are already exclus- uh, excluded. So um, this is the, the, uh, the, the problem about physics in, in, in general, that you, you have a model, you never can prove it, uh, but the, what you really can do, you can disprove it. But if you have um, if if you have proven it in, in uh, if you have shown then then, then there's agreement between reality and and your model in in let's say ten or twenty or or whatever uh, measurements or approaches then you're pretty convinced that this model is not too far from reality, but you have to be careful there. It's a philosophical question, and <laughs> <laughs> we won't we won't enter into that one. Tell us specifically what you do with the Millennium Simulation. Well, this is, um, I do, I do, again, I do a comparison between observation or try to do a comparison between observations and, and the simulation in a statistical way. And, uh, actually I try to, to measure this kind of distances. So I try to measure the average distance, uh, between galaxies. Um, you have, um, you have this dark matter halos. This is what you get from the simulation. And you have this semi-analytical approaches. So you know um, the evolution of each halo. And according to that, you set in a galaxy of, with um, certain um, properties. Now, there are two classes of galaxies. One of them are spiral galaxies. The other are elliptical galaxies. Spiral galaxies, the, the, the typical uh, shape of spiral galaxies, this is this pancake shape, this strongly is connected to baryonic physics. So that means only if you have electromagnetic cooling and stuff like this, you get this, this disks or this, um, but this is not included in the millennium simulation. So you have to do, find a way around how to get this orientation or you do not know from the first place, you do not know uh, where or how this disk should be oriented in in the dark matter halo, and there you need to have um, you need to get help from other kinds of simulations. These are hydrodynamic simulations, and they can uh, they probably simulate one halo in great detail, but they include the baryonic um, physics, and so they can find how the evolution of one halo, how the evolution of the dark matter component of this halo is connected to the evolution of the disk. And they do find that the angular momentum is a, is a, is a good thing probably to connect these two, but there are ambiguities and it's not very clear how to do it. Even if you do this hi, uh, the sophisticated hydrodynamic simulations, you, it's not very clear how to connect the t- angular momentum of the dark matter to the angular momentum of the baryonic matter which is um, responsible for the orientation of the disk. So this is very difficult to get to get an orientation of of for a disk galaxy in a millennium simulation is is a is a hard task. Um, you can do it statistically. You can say well, we don't know exactly, but we know it with uh, some uncertainty 
and so we do it in a statistical approach and this is what what maybe is the uh, is the most promising way to go for me this seems to be non well justified or it's very hard to handle this kind of problems so there's another type of galaxies these are the elliptical galaxies the elliptical galaxies also uh, they they contain stars and stars are baryons and, and made of baryons so again you would think that this is uh, very much um, um, involved with uh, baryonic physics but but the idea of uh, elliptical galaxies is that they or how they form is that they merge that they are two proto galaxies let's uh, let's say that these are spiral galaxies or whatever they merge and then they form this particular elliptical shape and the nice thing about this merging process or that the, the elliptical galaxies are formed by by merging is that this is related to collisionless physics and collisionless physics is has nothing to do with the baryons so that the special thing about baryons is that they collide and if they collide they radiate or they do things which are only which which only baryons can do but now if we if we if we look at the evolution or the, the formation of elliptical galaxies there are um, spiral galaxies which collide and they do not radiate they 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 follow collisionless physics and that's the reason why i have the feeling that the orientation or the, the properties of elliptical galaxies are closer related to the dark matter dark matter halo as it is for spiral galaxies for spiral galaxies they are really this is a thing of baryons whereas the, the the elliptical galaxies later on which they which form by merging they are probably more related or again they are closer to the dark matter they beho behave closer to the dark matter and the reason is why the process of of formation is collision collisionless physics so this is the reason why I think elliptical galaxies are good. The orientation of elliptical galaxies probably are, uh, I can dig out um, the uh, orientation of elliptical galaxies in the Millennium Simulation, even if there is no baryonic physics included. And now what I do next is if I have the, if I have an approach, if I have an idea how to assign an orientation of these elliptical galaxies to the semi-analytical galaxies, I mean from the semi-analytics I get colors and I get the, the stellar mass and all this stuff, but this is, but they do not get the orientations. So now I try to get the orientation, this is my part, I try to get this orientation of, only of elliptical galaxies because I, I don't know how to deal with them spiral galaxies now if i have this orientation of elliptical galaxies then i can relate or i can see what does the overall galaxy distribution do um, compared or in the, with reference to this orientation of the elliptical galaxies and this i can measure i can measure what is the probability to to um, find a galaxy along the line of the orientation of of this elliptical galaxies or with a with a little opening angle and a little cone let's say i can predict the number of normal average galaxy which i would find along the orientation of this elliptical galaxies and so i get a number out of this so i with with all my my thinking and all this um, information from the millennium simulation i can get a number i can say well along the line along the orientation of elliptical galaxies you will find 20 other galaxies within, let's say, a few hundred million uh, light years. So if you have a cone, uh, a few hundred million light years long, 
you will find a certain amount of galaxies. And this is a number which I can get, get from the simulation. And this number, again, I can compare to observations. Hmm. So out of the observations, the Sloan data, you've got your little cone of observation, your line of sight through the universe. You can count up how many galaxies you see of an elliptical nature orientated at a certain position angle, presumably, because you can observe that, you can see that. You then compare the same thing with the, the same observation, so to speak, in the Millennium Simulation, because you've learned how to assign a elliptical galaxy from your family of analytic models into the halos of the Millennium Simulation, and you know how to orient them right. in the Millennium Simulation. So then you can yeah. you observe, in inverted commas, <laughs> the, the, the orientation of uh, elliptical galaxies in the Millennium Simulation, find out how many galaxies are, are orientated at a certain position angle and compare that number of galaxies to what you actually observe in the Sloan data. Right. Mm. You're right. So how have you done? <laughs> <laughs> What's the result? <laughs> do, yes. do, do they agree? Yes, they, they, they do agree. Um, we So far, this is work in progress. Um, we did, uh, uh, we get uh, qualitatively, we get really nice agreement. So the signal looks pretty much the same. We are not sure whether the, the amplitude of the signal, whether this is uh, modeled correctly. So there we have to do some more work to see. Uh, because as I said, it's not clear how to connect the orientations of galaxies to the connections of dark matter halos. And even if I do this approach with them um, focusing on the central parts of the dark matter halo uh, to get the orientations of this um, uh, of this elliptical galaxies, then it's not really clear whether this is whether this is the absolutely correct way to do it. And as I said, there are no baryons in the in the Millennium simulation. So whether there there could be other processes processes which um, have an Im influence on the final or on the yeah on the final orientation of an elliptical galaxy, and this is just not included in the dark matter simulation. Well, as a start, though, it sounds like you're doing fantastic work, and it seems to be that you're you're matching up the best known simulation of the universe with the real one. So congratulations on that, and we look forward to hearing more about it. Thank you. And thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks for being here. It was a pleasure to, for, uh, to have this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> All interesting stuff. And if you have any feedback on this or indeed any other interview or part of the Jodcast, please do send it in. You know the usual channels. Facebook, the web, postcards, anything. And you can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash Jodcast. Yes, find out what we're doing right now. And you can also follow us on YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. And once again, a plea for your feedback. Do send us your feedback. If you listen to us, subscribe to us via iTunes. Wherever you are, please do review us on iTunes. Also by the web, go to the website, fill in the feedback form, send us a line, write us a letter. All sorts of ways you can let us know how we're doing, what you'd like to hear on your jodcast. And uh, just as a plea for the intros and outros... Some people say they're too long, some people say they're just right. Uh, but that doesn't matter. What I'd like to know is what scripts would you like to hear, what pastiches would you like? And also, if you have any questions for the beginning and the end of the extra shows, then do send them in. So that's all from us for this episode of the Jodcast. Thank you very much for downloading and listening to us. 
We'll be talking to you again next episode at the start of October. And again, do check out the new video feed of the Jodcast. So that's all from us. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Jod on. I asked you before, what will be the next time that the trip meter is the first four digits of the odometer? And this is in fact in another 1,010.1 miles, when the numbers 13,355.7 and 133.5 will appear on the mileage indicators. If you are allowed to reset the trip meter here, you only need to drive uh, 124.6 miles, although with the price of gas at the moment, who would want to? See you in October.